leave it to a non-Jewish comedian to make the perfect Jewish joke. The comedian Stephen Wright tells the story of going to a 24-hour grocery. And when he gets there, the owner was in front locking the front door. And Wright says to him, doesn't your sign say you're open 24 hours? And the owner says, yes, but not in a row. Which always struck me as such a Jewish joke. Because Jews argue almost everything. We argue over about ourselves and what we believe. We argue over what we have and what we should have and what we don't have. Even the things that you might think that are easy to understand Jews disagree about. Rice or no rice on Pesach? Chumus or no chumus on Pesach? One day of Yom Tov or two days of Yom Tov? You know, to an outsider, it would strike them as bizarre how a religion could have so many running disagreements within itself and how it could still remain to be a single religion. But we think, and given the extraordinary data showing Jewish participation in Passover, from making or attending a Seder to even just buying a box of matzah, we think that we can agree on one thing, and that is what Passover is meant to celebrate. Freedom, we are told, over and over again. But I wonder if we really know what that is. You know, when I was a child, I'm going to date myself now, but I used to love watching Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Some of you are nodding. Okay, <laughs> I'm not alone. I love the sound of Marlon Perkins, who was the host, welcoming me to a world that was so different from where I lived, which was Brooklyn. They showed images of lions and tigers, gazelles and giraffes running across the plains of the Serengeti, and it all seemed beautiful and right, and they seemed happy that this was the way it should be for them. In other words, the lion and gorilla that you see at the zoo was in the wrong place. But later on, I came to understand that the image of a gazelle or a zebra running across an idyllic African plain is probably running because a predator is pursuing it, which is to say that life in the wild is without mercy, and it is harsh, and more often than not, it is terribly short, that there are water shortages and food scarcities, that there are predators and threats of weather. And in his book, Life of Pi, it's a beautiful book. Jan Martel writes what happens when cages in zoos are accidentally left open, or when the animals are somehow are left unattended and are free to escape from the zoo. In one instance, he writes from a zoo in Vienna. The next morning, the zookeeper arrived to serve the animals breakfast to, in shock, find the cages of a lion and leopard wide open. Someone hadn't locked them, and the evening's wind must have blown them wide open. The zookeeper panicked, and he quickly scans, only to find both animals in the corner of their cages, quiet and unmoving. In another case, he writes of an animal that escapes and the entire town is put on alert and sent out to locate the dangerous animal. But days later, he is found, and without event, they discover the animal huddled in a large brush of bushes and trees, hungry and cowered. And from the outside, the animal is brought back to the zoo, where it eagerly runs back into its cage. 
In Life of, Mar- in Life of Pi, Martel writes that we see this over and over again. In the battle and choice between the freedom of the wilderness and the knowingness of a cage, that animals would choose the cage over and over again. But tonight as you sit down this evening to your second Seder, I want to ask you, as you should ask, a fifth question. Is this story only true about animals? So I want to take you back a few hundred years into the mind of one of the most important and foundational political thinkers of human history. Thomas Hobbes, Englishman, 17th century human being, looked into the kinds of bargains that humans make for themselves. Because humans, Hobbes said, have in their lives two central concerns that are competing with themselves over time. Humans on one hand want freedom. We want freedom of expression, freedom of movement, freedom of wealth, and freedom of choice. Which is to say that we want to do what we want to do with, with who we want to do it and when we want to do it. And that's the kind of freedom that humans crave. But then comes along another freedom and need. If the human story is about dreams and craving for freedoms to choose how and when and where of life, we also deeply want and need security. And there lies, Hobbes said, which he wrote in the 1600s in Derbyshire, England, there lies the greatest of human riddles. As Jack Benny once joked, what will it be? Your money or your life? Freedom or safety? Security or autonomy? What will it be? A student of human history won't have a difficult time in answering that question, though. Because each and every time, our safety has been threatened. Each and every time a new threat seems to loom over our lives, we readily and even happily hand over our freedoms in order to get safety. And here's the bitter proof. In the Western world, dictators come to power not because they forcibly take control of the government. Nearly in almost every modern dictator in the Western power has come to power because they were voted into it. They come to promise you a job or food, safe borders, or to destroy your enemies. They promise you safety in exchange for your freedom. And politicians know this. They know it. The examples of this litter the landscape of civilization. You know all those bucolic and inspiring European castles that you love to see on your summer trips? Medieval surf king society was based upon a crude transaction. You live and work the king or prince's land, giving him some of the food that you grow and keeping some of it for yourself in exchange that in a time of attack that you and your family can move into the castle for protection. In the Second World War, Japanese-Americans were interred in prison camps because they were deemed to be a threat, as were German-Americans. The foundational argument of Nazi anti-Semitism was the argument that Jews were a threat to the safety of the Aryan nation. And the examples go on and on. The McCarthy anti-communist trials of the 1950s, post-9-11 terrorism laws that permitted the governments of the United States, of Canada, and Western Europe an unprecedented level of surveillance on your phone calls and your emails and your other communications. 
Look at the rise of authoritarianism in Eastern and Western Europe under the guise of saving people from danger. And even here in Canada, excusing or supporting politicians for lying because they promised to save jobs or our cities or our way of life. It's the same bargain you see over and over again. Just change the names and it's the same thing. Because Hobbes was right. We see the bargain play itself out in our headlines. The more we are afraid, the more we want to be safe, and the quicker we all are to hand over our freedoms. But last night you sat at your Seder. And just a few precious minutes before, you started ladling chicken soup into a bowl. The great Talmudic sage Gamaliel jumps right in, right after the Dayenu, and he says, Wait! Before you eat, there are three things that you must explain before you let go of this moment. Number one, the Passover offering, which commemorates the slaughtering of the lamb, which is the Egyptian god of Amun. Number two, the maror, the bitter herb. And number three, the matzah. And why matzah? Because we are told to say that we left zone, that we left in a hurry that we didn't want to stay in Egypt. Because when the main moment came, we didn't wait to gather this or that. We didn't wait to empty our safety deposit box or make sandwiches. The seduction of what we know is comfortable. And that, that no matter how may bad it may be in the moment, the vision of what you don't know, of what you aren't sure of, is terrifying. The Haggadah goes on to say, once again, quoting the ancient sage Gamliel, he says that the matzah is a symbol of hope and therefore of freedom. Our answers were prepared to leave everything they knew behind and place their trust in an unknown future. They knew they were leaving and they knew they were meant to go to a land promised to them. But surely the idea of what was in front of them must have been both beautiful and frightening all at the same time. But after all, isn't that what hope is? Isn't hope a combination of something we know but haven't yet seen? Isn't it something we dream of so strongly that it seems real in your heart, but you know it's not yet real? The ancient Greeks told the story about Pandora, who was given a gift by Zeus. It was a box that she was told under no circumstances should she open it. The temptation for her was too great. And Pandora lifts up the lid and all the ills that plague our world, violence and greed and conceit and deception, they came pouring out. And Pandora then scrambles to try to close the box, which she does, leaving only one thing left inside it. The thing that never makes its way out, according to the Greek legend, is hope. The ancient Greeks saw human life as hopeless. It was a trivial field where the dreams and battles of the gods would play themselves out on us, that you and I were only pawns on some celestial stage. But beginning last night, Jewish tradition shattered that forever. Judaism says that hope is not left behind locked inside of some mythical box, denying you and human beings of dreaming of something better 
in fact, that there's one thing that Jews have always agreed on. It is that the right to dream for something better and the privilege to fight for it. So 3,500 years ago, a people stood at the cusp of Pandora's Bosque asking themselves, would it be safety or would it be freedom? Would it be security or would it be hope? Would it be your money or will it be your life? And ever since then, we are asked the same question. Will we be worthy of their courage? We observe, and if you are asked why you observe this holiday, it is because your answer is yes. It is yes to courage and always yes to hope. Chag Sameach and Shabbat Shalom.